Heavenly Father, we bow before you. You are God. We know that a man has nothing except it's given him from heaven. We also know that through your Son, you've given us all things. And so it's with great gratitude that we come before you. For blessing upon blessing has been heaped upon us. And sometimes we are not very grateful. We don't see, we don't understand, we don't grasp all that is that you've done for us, all that it is that you do every day. But sometimes we grasp a little and we're just filled with gratitude because you are God. Bless us this morning as we turn our attention to thy holy word and the subject which, which is uh, the most important to us, I think, as, as a people. And we, we thank you for it. We thank you for touching our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'll have you turn to Revelation chapter 14. Re Revelation chapter 14. We started uh, with a question yesterday. Now, I assume some of you were not here yesterday. Perhaps most of you were. I don't know. But we could review this just a little. It was a question that came from my vice president as we were, as I was walking through a cafeteria one day and she was there cutting watermelon. She arrested me and asked this question. Ellen White says that the third angel's message is righteousness by faith. Justification by faith in verity. But she says, when I hear our preachers preach on the topic of righteousness or the three angels' messages, I always hear them preaching on the mark of the beast and the resultant wrath of God. Where is the righteousness by faith in all of that? And my impromptu answer at the time was, the righteousness is there not expressed, not explicit in the text, but it is there by imputation or by... How, what's the word here? It's implication. implication. That's the word I'm looking for. That's, it's implied. It's there in the text. It's there by contrast. And with that, of course, started a little string of happenings which landed us here together this morning. That's what we began to look at yesterday. Well, we developed this thing to the point where we found out that from the spirit of prophecy, we hear that since the message was given in 1888, especially to us as a people, the message has been marred in our hands. It's not very flattering, is it? It was that way back then. And I assume it, it is still that way to this day. Otherwise, why would we still be here? If we have not, if we had done what was right in the sight of God with the messages that God has sent us, if we had received it, if we had incorporated it, if we had experienced the message of righteousness by faith as it is found in the three angels' messages, then I believe that the Lord would have come long ere this. So there remains something for us to learn, you and I. We need to begin by admitting, admitting that, getting on our knees, asking the Lord to open up, to unfold to us what is contained in these, in these messages. Now, as a people, we've developed the messages of, of uh, 
the three angels' messages, the first, second, and third angels' messages, we've developed the things that are in there on the surface of things. We've pretty well developed, as a people, the investigative judgment. And let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with that message. It's an amazing message. It is great to understand what's going there. And as a people, we've managed to be able to, to see the positive side of the investigative judgments. At least some of us have been able to see that. And it's a wonderful thing. But that's not all that's there. And in the second angel's message, we've been able to develop uh, what it means that Babylon is fallen, what God intends by sending us this message, what, how we ought to relate to all of that. And that too is wonderful, so that we do not have to be deceived by the things that are going on in the world or in other churches. The Lord has been specific with us. It's wonderful. He's kept us from a lot of danger through that. But there's more to the message than just that Babylon the Great is fallen is fallen. We're going, to, we're going to see a lot more of what that means, I think, as time develops. In the third angel's message, we've managed to focus on the mark of the beast. I believe that what we've learned through the spirit of prophecy, through the Bible, as our church has been preaching for many years, what we have been preaching is true about the mark of the beast and the wrath of God, about the history of the beast, and the prophecies that will follow the beast, and all of that, and the political implications of all of that. But we found out yesterday that if we fail to include the righteousness of Christ, if we fail to intermingle it with the law and the commandments and the prophecies and the histories, then we are failing of laying hold on the power that has been made available to God's people. And I wish, I wish, and I guess this is the thing that I promised yesterday, that we would try this morning to demonstrate the power of righteousness, the power that is in righteousness. This is what we need to see as a people. And uh, let me tell you what, I... I wish I had some degree of confidence here that I could do that. I would like to be able to communicate the amount of power that is found in the righteousness of Christ. I guess it's an infinite subject, and I don't suppose I have that kind of communication ability, but I'd like to try this morning. This is what I said I would try to do. I've had you turn with me to Revelation chapter 14 now. Revelation chapter 14. This is all by way of introduction this morning, and we're going to get to the, the subject in a minute. Revelation 14, I suppose you know, is divided into three parts. The first part, which is really the second part in, in what is written here, the first part is verses 6 to 12. That's the three angels' messages. That's the first part as far as I'm concerned. If we could understand what is found in the three angels' messages, if we could grasp what is found there, if we could experience what is found there, then in experiencing, we would be developing perfection. As far as I can tell by studying the text, the, perfect, the perfection of the 144,000, which is the second part, of course, of Revelation 14. Verses 1 to 5 points out, uh, how shall I say, reveals to us the perfection of the 144,000. We're going to read that in a minute. When the 144,000 are perfected, 
when the 144,000 are sealed with the seal of the living God, then God is able to pour out upon these people the Holy Spirit in latter rain power. And then as it says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, the whole world will be lightened with the glory of God's character because God's character will be in these people and God will see to it that the people are dispersed all over the world so that there's light strategically placed all over the world and the whole world will be enlightened with the glory of God's character and the whole world's eyes will be opened they're going to see God and they're going to say we've never seen God in this light before this is amazing and there's going to be such a drawing because of the light if if you read Isaiah chapter 60 it says arise and shine get up and glow because the light has come upon thee and this is what's going to happen. And the world's going to see it. And in seeing it, there's going to be an infusion. There's going to be a, a, an ingathering of souls such as we've never seen in the world before. It's going to be amazing. Going to be amazing. Well, then, of course, the third part of Revelation 14 is verses 13 to 20, which is simply the harvest. The Lord puts sickles in the hands of his angels, and he goes out and he says, go out there and reap. And so the tares are reaped and the wheat is reaped and the whole thing is over. That's what this is all about. So let's look now at verses 1 to 5. I just would like to read that just so we can get a picture of the 144,000 and what the Bible says about them. And keep in mind that it is the three angels' messages that form these people. We need to understand the three angels' messages. And I wish I had time. I was saying yesterday I began to study this thing. It's been a year studying. I've prepared 27 sermons on the subject. We've developed the thing to some degree. But I only have three mornings to be with you. I can't possibly unfold all of that which we've been learning over the last year with you. So all that I can do, I think, is whet your appetite. I think that's all that I can do. And, and go where I think is most important to go for the little time we have together. So we're in Revelation chapter 14, looking at verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And so here we have the character of God is in the 144,000. They are sealed with the seal of the living God. It's wonderful. And the Lamb stands with them. They stand with the Lamb. What a picture. This is what God is expecting of His people. The Lamb is with us. We are with the Lamb. His character is, is developed in us. What a closeness. What a blessing. Do you have that experience? Do you hunger and thirst for that experience? Does the Bible say... Blessed are the righteous, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Does the Bible say that? No. No. Why doesn't the Bible say that? Because there aren't any. No, that's the truth. There are no righteous people in this world. But the Bible does say, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after this righteousness, for they shall be filled. What will they be filled with? They're going to be filled with the righteousness of God, the only righteousness that has any power, the only righteousness that has any love in it, the only righteousness that avails anything is the righteousness of God. And so, of course, as we study righteousness by faith, we need to lose confidence in ourselves, in our own righteousness. We need to lay hold on the righteousness of God, for the power is there. That's what we're going to look at. Verse 2, 
And I heard a voice from heaven, as a voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. It's going to be a new song. Because I believe with all my heart that God is choosing out a people by which he can do, make a demonstration such as has never been made in this world before. We're going to have an experience that no one has ever had before. It's an experience in righteousness fully. Not our righteousness, but we're going to receive his righteousness so fully that we're going to reflect Jesus Christ. No one has in this world, maybe Enoch and Elijah and Moses, I suppose, uh, Daniel, Joseph, uh, they've had a similitude of that experience. But corporately, 144,000, whether they be literal or symbolic, I don't care. I'd like to be part of that number, and I'd like to have this experience, and I'd like to learn to sing that song. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, they're going to sing it. New song, before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women, not corrupted with false doctrine, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, before being the first fruit unto God and to the Lamb. And then, of course, the crowning verse, and their mouth was, in their mouth was found no guile, and they were without fault before the throne of God. There's power in the three angels' messages rightly understood. There's power in the three angels' messages if the messages are communicated in their fullness. This is what we saw yesterday. We have a tendency to preach only half of the message. We have a tendency to stay with the history and to stay with the prophecy and to stay with what is shallow uh, on the surface of the page. The Lord would like us to mine out, go deeper, and the deeper you go, the richer the, the mine is, you understand. And so this is what God wants us to do. In Desire of Ages, page 671, it says, The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of His people. Are we perfect yet? This word perfection, you know, I almost hate to preach on the subject. It's, it's brought a lot of confusion among us. We've never, we've not always known how to relate to the word perfection. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, the one word perfection is translated in English in a whole host of words. I'll just give you a sampling here. It's translated entire, mature, without blemish, complete, full, consummate, sincerely, sound, whole, undefiled, upright, pious, plain, just, peaceable, quiet, ready, fulfilled, and on and on and on. That's just a sampling. And hardly any of these words mean, as far as translation is concerned, mean the same thing as we understand when we talk about perfection. And so it's engendered some confusion. And when studying the topic of righteousness by faith, <clears throat> then we really get confused. Because we can see in the Bible, looking at the 144,000, we see a degree of perfection. <clears throat> then we go and we look in the mirror and does not compute. <laughs> it's just not the same thing. There, there's something wrong with our perfection. 
for sure. When we look at God, we think of perfection in the absolute. Now, do you think that God had an advantage being perfect over sinful human beings? Well, yes, <laughs> of course. If I was God, I'd have, a, I'd have an advantage over you. Don't tell me he doesn't have an advantage. He's God. And I'm, who am I? You see, great, great advantage to be God and to be perfect like God is. He's never had a carnal nature. He's never been tempted. He's never sinned. His nature, whatever his nature is, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual or social or emotional, his nature is undefiled. Besides that, he doesn't live in our environment. And on the other hand, we have carnal natures. We are corrupted by sin. We are temptable and we are tempted. And we're surround, our surroundings, pardon, pardon my saying, our surroundings suck. That's what it is. And yet watch what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. If you'll go with me. Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verse 48. I know you know where I'm going. Verse 48, Matthew 5. You know what it says, and we've talked about this a lot as a people. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And how perfect is God? Well, He's perfect in the absolute. Can we be as perfect as God is? Why no? Well, now, if we can't be, why in the world did Jesus say that? Can you see why some people might be confused? I mean, especially if we're very young Christians and we come to the Bible and we want to stop sinning and we want to be perfect and we looked at God's perfection and we see what God says that we should be as perfect as God, it appears to say in the verse, and you're just like, whoa, how far short I fall from this thing. I would like to, I would like to praise God this morning for the spirit of prophecy. If we didn't have the spirit of prophecy, this would really be confusing. If we didn't have the spirit of prophecy, we would have to do as other churches have to do. We would have to denigrate God's word to make it fit our experience because our experience is so, so, so limited, so limited. And so we would have to organize our theologies, you understand. And sometimes Seventh-day Adventists do the same thing. They organize their theology to fit their experience. This is not what God intended, you understand. God has a goal. What did we read yesterday? Uh, third selected messages, page 202, paragraph 1. Sanctification is God's object in all his dealings with us. How many of his dealings? Whatever God does in your life, whatever has God has done in the crucifixion of his son, in his resurrection, in his ministry in heaven, in his providences in your life, whatever God does, his object is sanctification. To make you just like Jesus. And we can keep that in mind because we are Seventh-day Adventists. Because we know what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the sanctuary. We're living in the antitypical day of atonement. We understand what that means. And because we understand what that means, we can cooperate with God in His purposes. Sanctification is God's object in all His dealings with us. And we have the spirit of prophecy to tell us. Do you know what we would be like if we didn't have the spirit of prophecy? You know, there's a movement afoot to denigrate the spirit of prophecy. I don't know if you've noticed, 
But I'll tell you what, it is that way. And in many churches, we're not allowed to use the spirit of prophecy because Ellen White did say a time or two that we shouldn't use the spirit of prophecy in preaching so much. Yeah, yeah. But it's gone the other way. It really has. It's gone to the place where you don't hear the spirit of prophecy. People don't read the spirit of prophecy. The books are gathering dust. And, and it's the Bible and the Bible only. And I, and I can appreciate that. I really, really can. The Bible holds everything. Uh, but who would we be without the spirit of prophecy? Do you know who it would be? Well, all you have to do is look at the churches outside Look at Protestantism in America today. Look at what it is, and that's who we would be. Do you know why they are the way they are? Because they don't have the spirit of prophecy. That's the only reason. It's a huge blessing to have the spirit of prophecy. It really, really is. Now, on the topic of perfection here, and I'm, I'm kind of straying. On the topic of perfection, the spirit of prophecy balances us out. The spirit of prophecy tells us what to think and how to think it. Mount of Blessing, page 77. Mount of Blessing, page 77. He, that is Jesus, tells us to be perfect as he is, that is, in the same manner. In other words, we need to be perfect in the same way. But friends, not to the same extent. Can I illustrate that somehow? Does the Bible say, does the Bible command, does Jesus command us to love even as he loved us? Is that true? How did Jesus love us? With all his strength, with all his mind, with all that he is. Isn't that true? Hasn't God given us absolutely everything that he is? What has he denied himself all things in order to, to save us? It's true. Well, friends... Can I compare my strength with God's strength? If I was comparing my strength with God's strength, what would I look like? Well, I'd be a mess. Yeah. But that does not stop me from using all my strength. Even though I have so much less. You know, a father may be big and strong and he have a little son. But the two of them can use all the strength they have. It's just that one's going to lift a whole pile more than the other. And that's the way it is with God. God is infinite in strength, and I am limited in strength, but I can use all the strength that I have. And this is what perfection is all about. It says so also in uh, Medical Ministry, page 112, 113. As God is perfect in his sphere, so man is to be perfect in his sphere. Obviously, we do not live in the same sphere. There's differences there. God lives and moves and has being in the entire universe. And my little sphere surrounds my little home and my little office and my little hometown. And now I have a little bit to do with ASI and OCI and Africa because my wife works there. And that's my sphere. It's terribly lim limited. And God lives in dimensions unimaginable. I, wounded and defiled, lived in a world of sin and degradation. Can we even begin to think that my perfection is going to equal his? Why no? No. Volume 2 of the Testimonies, 170, paragraph 0. You cannot equal the copy, but you can resemble it, and according to your ability, do likewise. And that's what it is. And I'm about to show you now um, as precisely as I possibly can what's expected of us when it comes to this topic of perfection. Is perfection possible? Let's look at a couple of verses. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. 
And we're going to look at verse 1. We're going to look at three verses in the Bible, three passages. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. It's interesting to me how this is said. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. You know, Christ is everything. And what Jesus did at the cross is everything. But everything that Christ has done is a platform. It's a platform with a purpose. And so Jesus has taken our sins upon himself. He's gone to the cross with our sins. He's paid the whole penalty for our sins. He makes that the foundation. And he says, use this as a springboard to perfection. Therefore, leaving the principle of the doctrine of Christ, let's go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Again, the book of Hebrews chapter 13. And we're looking at verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. You'll recognize this as Jesus' last corporate prayer. John chapter 17, verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. How will the world know? If it isn't in God's ability to perfect unto himself, himself a people. That's what it says right here in the verse. God has a purpose. God wants to make a demonstration. God would like to have the whole world's eyes open. He would like to, the whole world to see his character for what it really is. And he's going to do that through his people. By the perfection of his people. Amazing. It's an amazing thing. And, uh, I understand this is not a popular, a popular teaching. We've been wrestling with this for too long. But forgive me for speaking something that's not popular. It just happens to be the truth. What are we going to do? We're living at a time when Jesus is wanting to come. We're living at a time when Jesus wants to use his people. We're living at a time when Jesus will, will choose the weakest of the weak and he will show the rest of the world. He will, he, will, he will destroy the wisdom of the wise by using the foolish. You know, that's us, by the way. He wants to do this. I don't, I'm sorry it's unpopular. <laughs> Here's a definition from Great Controversy, page 477. And this one tells us exactly I mean, we've gotten very precise now. The Lord requires perfection from his redeemed family. He expects us, from us, the perfection which Christ revealed in his humanity. Jesus came down to this world, took humanity upon himself, set aside his divinity, lived life as we have to live it, lived it with the same equipment we have, and succeeded in a perfect character at the end of his life, the, fu the fullness of his life. And he says, you can do it too. Yeah. The works that I do, the Father doeth in me, and greater works shall you do than I do, because I go to the Father. <laughs> 
That's what he said. We can do this. And he is the template. He is the standard. And he presents himself and he says, because I have lived this life, you can do so too. That is the standard. Now, we need to stop arguing as to whether perfection is possible or not possible. The Bible says that it is. The spirit of prophecy says that it is. The question is not, is perfection possible? There's a much deeper question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Now, all of this was introduction. The, the sermon begins right here, right now. Yeah. Here's the question. If we were perfect, would we be safe to bring to heaven? Would heaven be secure if we were perfect today? I need to hear your answer. No. <laughs> Thank you for answering yes. You've played into it. Yeah. I wish it was so. You see, the problem is we think it is so. If only we would be perfect, we could be safe to save. Well, friends... That's been the problem from the beginning. We have, you know, you remember Martin Luther obsessed with salvation. He was just a little boy. He wanted to go to heaven. But he grew up in a church that was very logical in its theology. And the problem with the theology was this. Sin is the problem. And all I have to do is quit sinning. And then I can go to heaven. Is that true? Well, it's so logical that it seems to be true. The problem is we have sinful natures and we can't quit sinning. And what a frustration he experienced in his life because he was thinking like I think we think also. But let me share with you something that ought to blow your socks off, I think. This is 5 BC, 1132, and this is paragraph 5. Watch what it says here. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. What was it that failed in Eden? Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Human perfection failed in the paradise of bliss. They were perfect coming from the hands of God. They were living in a perfect environment. They had never sinned. And besides that, they had communion with God and they had communion with holy angels. And yet they, what? They failed. Now take your perfection and compare it to the perfection of Adam and Eve coming from the hand of God. Perfect. How do you stand? Well, I'd like to deepen this thing just a little bit. Because the quotation goes on to, suggest, uh, to, um, to say this. But let me suggest this at this moment. We are going to need a perfection that exceeds the perfection of Adam and Eve before they failed. Because theirs failed. Listen to this. Same quotation, angelic perfection failed in heaven. What is it that failed in heaven? Perfection failed in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Perfect environment, sinless angels, superior to perfect human beings, in the very presence of God, and they what? Wow, how would you like to compare your perfection to theirs this morning? And think to secure heaven. There's no way. And so I'm trying to tell you this morning that perfection is not the key to securing heaven. Perfection is not the key to getting into heaven. We need to come to grips with this thing. Do you know there's only one thing that will get us to heaven? Do you know what it is? Do you know there's only one thing that will secure heaven? And do you know that if I tell you what it is, it'll fall flat on its face? 
It's terrible that it should be that way. But let me read it to you and let's look at it fall flat. So it's again, it's the same quotation. That which alone, what does alone mean? I mean, there's nothing else. There's only one thing. As a matter of fact, the word one is in the word alone, isn't it? All alone, one thing. That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. There is one thing that will prevent sin from ever happening again in heaven or in earth. One thing. And if there is nothing else, then isn't that the thing we should lay hold on? That's what it says. It is through the efficacy of the cross. Oh, that. We've heard it so often <laughs> that it doesn't mean very much to us. Our hearts are hardened. If we could see what the Apostle Paul saw in the cross, we would glory in nothing else. The whole world would become repugnant to us. We would be repulsive to the world. Isn't that what happened to Paul? Yeah, yeah. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in heaven or earth must look to the Lamb of God, must look to the cross. Wow. Now, do you understand that? I don't. Oh, Lord, help me. How am I going to explain what I don't understand? This is the situation I'm in this morning. We need to understand. What did Paul see when he saw the cross? Yeah. If we recap this a little bit, the perfect righteousness of sinless angels was insufficient. Now, I don't know if I have the right to use the word righteousness with angels because if you read the spirit prophecy in the Bible, you never find the word righteous angels. But I use it because in communication, we need to understand what we're saying to each other. And I, I believe you understand what I'm saying. The perfect righteousness of sinless angels was insufficient. The perfect righteousness of sinless Adam and Eve was insufficient. And Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness must exceed all of that. Perfect angels, perfect human beings, imperfect human beings, whatever. So which righteousness cuts all through all of that? There's only one righteousness left, and that is the righteousness of God. No other righteousness. Can I show you what this righteousness is like? Well, I can't, but I'm going to try. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Think of it this way, if you can. How long were Jesus and the Father together before the fall of man? <laughs> yeah, eternally. If, uh, how much love did the Father and the Son have for each other? Is it describable? If love grows with the passing of time and they were together a million years, then a trillion years, then forever beyond 10 trillion years, and ever and ever and ever, 
What kind of love did they have for each other? What would it take to break that bond? What kind of wedge could you drive between them? Is there, what power in the universe do you think there is that could come to the place where it could divide the father and the son? Do you think there's any power? There's no power. It's, you know, and maybe I can't think in those terms. We can't think of love growing with God because God is perfect. He doesn't have to grow. He starts out perfect. But the word start doesn't play well in this because he's eternal. <laughs> and so love was at, was at its zenith in the very beginning and carried on through eons of time and eons of time and eons of time. The affection they felt one for another beyond description forever and ever and ever and ever. What would it take to break that bond? It's impossible. So then we go to history. And there was war in heaven. And then, of course, Adam and Eve fell. And Jesus and his father had covenanted that if there was going to be a fall anywhere in the universe, that Jesus would go to redeem that fall. And so here we are. We're in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is walking into the Garden of Gethsemane here. And we're looking at verse 33. And he takes... And he takes with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. So Jesus is walking into the Garden of Gethsemane. The sins of the whole world is beginning to come upon him and it's crushing him. It's crushing him. He didn't. And it says he was amazed as if Jesus could ever be amazed. But he was amazed. Even though he had covenanted to take the sins of the world, he had never tasted the sins of the world before. He'd made a decision to do it. But when it came upon him, it was more than he had understood it to be for its destructive power. Even unto death, it says in verse um, 34, and says unto them, that is John, Peter, and James, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And so he goes forward a little, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him and listen to his prayer and try to grasp the pathos that's in there. And he said, Abba, Dad, Father, all things are possible to thee. Do you see where he applies his prayer? Is it true that all things are possible with God? Yeah. It's true. God can do anything. I mean, how can you answer? If you were God, how could you answer this prayer? He comes on his knees and he's being crushed. The life is crushing out of him. And he says, you can do anything. You can do anything. You can remove this thing. Is there no other way? There's got to be another way. You are God. You can do this. Where are we? 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but with what thou wilt. What's happening here? In mind, character, and personality, um, book one, page 206, paragraph one. Love is a decision of the sanctified will. Jesus had covenanted with heaven to take the sin of the world upon himself. He enters into this experience. It's crushing the life out of him. And what is happening here, he is put in a position where he has to make a decision. 
He's put in a position where he has to decide between an eternity of affection that he has received from his father and eternity of affection that he has invested in his father forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and, and this, this eternity of affection, he's being asked to decide between that and not something equal, not something as enticing, not something as attractive, not something that you'd call a temptation. He is being asked to decide between an eternal love and an eternal separation from that love through torture. Now, what kind of decision is that? I mean, if you had to decide between Drinking a glass of mud and drinking a glass of cool water on a hot day. There's no decision. <laughs> you know, we always go towards that which is more comfortable and more of a blessing to us. And so here he's being torn asunder. Love is in the battle with love. That's what it is. Love for the Father, love for the human race. But he's bestowed an eternity of affection in that direction. That's what's happening. Can you imagine what's being asked of him there? I'd like to illustrate it this way. I, I don't know if the illustration stands very well. In the Garden of Eden, Eve has received a fruit from a talking serpent. She takes a bite out of it. And then uh, Adam comes along and she offers him the fruit. Adam sees with his eyes. He sees with his heart. He understands what's going on. She's been deceived. He understands what's going on. She hands him the fruit. And Adam is placed in a position where he has to choose between the, the one he's loved with an all-consuming passion and God doing right. Now put yourself in Adam's perfection, uh, position. What would you have chosen? Is there... <laughs> I'm sorry for thinking in human terms. You know, I think of God, I love God. I love the Word of God. I love the concepts and, and the theology that comes with all of that. But you know, God is always there, somewhere. And my lover is here in my arms. Maybe it wasn't like that with Adam. I don't know, but my mind says that God was a parental figure in Adam's mind, but his lover was something else. And when he was brought to a decision, why did he choose Eve instead of God? Because, I think, and I, I understand, I'm speculating, but I can see it because I'm human he had bestowed, he had invested far more affection on this lovely lady than he had upon God. Oh, it's not that he didn't love God. He has a lot to love God for, uh, but he didn't have God in his arms. And maybe he should have, you know? What would you have done? I mean, I think humanly speaking, we can understand why Adam went the way he did. What are you and I going to do when like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when like Adam in, Eve, in Eden looking into Eve's eyes, what are we going to do when we're asked to decide between God and what our, hearts, our best heart's affection has been bestowed upon? Our lovers, 
our children, our grandchildren, the wealth we've accumulated, and the properties we have, and all of that. Do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember the angels dragging Lot and his wife outside of the city and the instruction that the angel gave to Lot and his wife? Do not look back. That's not hard instruction to follow. You can understand that with your brain. The, the angel says, don't look back. You don't look back. Why did Mrs. Lot look back? Well, it's easy to understand. She had invested all her affections on her children on her grandchildren, on her property, on her wealth, on her gardens, on her uh, hobbies, on her everything was back there. And she had failed to bestow her affections upon God. And so when there was a decision to make, it was bigger than her. Now, friends, that's the sin problem. We have that nature. It isn't wrong to bestow your affections on your lover. Praise the Lord. God would have you bestow your affections on your children and on your grandchildren. He wants us to have passion. He wants us to love with real love. Ah. But the Bible also says, set your affections on things above and not on the things of this world. In other words, set more affection in God than in the things of this world. Because one day you will be asked to make a decision. You will be brought to the point where your affections will decide for you. Oh, I hope not. Because love is a decision of the sanctified heart. Wow. Where will we get the power that we need in that day when we're called upon to make a decision? Can you see it? There is only one power in the universe that could succeed in that contest. And that's the righteousness of God himself. The righteousness of perfect angels failed in the, heaven of, in, the, in the heavenly universe. The righteousness, the righteousness of perfect human beings failed in the garden of bliss. Certainly fallen human beings will not have enough righteousness to succeed in this contest. But there was enough righteousness, there was enough power in the righteousness of God to make Jesus deny himself an eternity of affection both ways. He could deny himself something that we'll never experience I, because we can't be eternal. There's no other power like this in the universe. And he could choose torture. Because he had the power to deny himself this thing. Why would we ever think Pharisee-like that we could ever produce that kind of power? Why would we ever think that we could ever produce that kind of righteousness? What is it in human beings, especially religious human beings, Pharisaical human beings, who can think to go around and say, I am going to perfect a character so I can go to heaven and I can receive the favor of God? It is insanity. At least we don't understand it. But that's what we do. And this is not what God is calling for. God says you don't have it. You can't have it. The only way you can have it is a righteousness outside of yourself. And when Jesus went to the cross and paid the full penalty for all of our sins, he turned around and said, here is my righteousness. And my righteousness is so powerful, it could control my heart in love. To deny myself everything so as to save you. There's no other righteousness that can save us. We've got to have that righteousness. That's the only righteousness there is. Set your affections on things above.
and not on the things of this world. And by the righteousness of God, you will make a decision someday. Ah, friends, listen. How is it with you this morning? Are you safe to save? Are you safe to bring to heaven? Would heaven be secure if you were there? No. <laughs> no. Not until you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. And the cross of Calvary is the only thing. If we set our eyes there to see what God has done and what it has cost him, then we will want what he had and he wants to give it to us. Oh, Lord, help us in this matter. What do you say? Yeah. Shall we stand? Heavenly Father, we don't often feel our, how weak we are, how small we are, how sinful we are, and we, we, need to, we need to see it. We need to feel it more than we do. We need to have a grasp of this thing. But more than feeling our weaknesses, which would tend to discourage us, we need to get a sense of who you are. The power in your righteousness, the power in your love, the power in the cross to convert the heart and to secure heaven in our souls. Lord, we don't know how exactly to approach this thing except to ask you in Jesus' name to work it out in us. That we may be your people, that we may have the perfection of your character in us. You can do this. We submit ourselves to you to do it and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.